We re-enter our series through the Gospel of Matthew that we've entitled the series The King and His Kingdom, and here we will consider His final week before His death on the cross. There's much that is packed into this final week of the King before He's betrayed and eventually crucified. And one of the elements of this final week is His confrontation with the religious leaders, or really more so their confrontation with him because Jesus did not seek it out. But they're constantly confronting him, constantly questioning him and attacking him. And Jesus is responding to them. And that's where we find our passage, Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. It's part of Jesus' response to the religious leaders. And in his response, he gives three parables. This is the third of those parables, all with the idea of confronting and exposing, and we might even say attacking in a proper way, the religious leaders and their wrong-headed notions of God and their hypocrisy because they claim to worship the one true God, but they do not in actuality. And he's going to point this out both to them and to all the crowd that's listening. And this is the major confrontation which will then lead to the cross. But in this particular parable, he gives the illustration of a wedding. I wonder, what do you do when you receive a wedding invitation? Whether it's a digital copy or a physical copy in the mail, you receive that invitation, how do you respond to it? Perhaps some of you respond right away. It's a, you, know, you go right to the calendar, you put it on the calendar, especially if it's someone who's close to you. And maybe you're one of those who's um, very keen to go ahead and RSVP the very day that you get that invitation. For others, Perhaps you delay a little bit, you think about it, or you, you want to make sure that your schedule's free, and perhaps even some of you kind of put it on the stack of mail and forget about it for a while until that uh, reminder to RSVP comes, please RSVP by this weekend or else you're not going to be in. But we receive wedding invitations, we realize we need to respond, this is something we do today, and it was something also that was expected in Jesus' day as well, although a few elements worked a bit differently then than they do now. And Jesus gives an illustration of that. Someone who receives a wedding invitation is asked RSVP, and we'll see what the result is. And what we're going to find out is that Jesus is choosing to use a parable. And let me remind us why he's using a parable, just to refresh our memory. He uses parables for two purposes, one to reveal truth and one to conceal truth. To reveal truth to those who are willing to accept it and to conceal it from those who've already rejected it. The religious leaders and many of the Jewish people are those who have already chosen to reject Jesus. They've seen the signs. They've heard him speak like no other human being. They've heard him do things no other human being could do. They've heard him claim to be God, but they've rejected him. And so for them, by Jesus speaking in parables, much of the truth is concealed from them because they already know the truth and they've rejected it. But for others who are willing to respond to him, it allows them to have the truth revealed more fully to them. And so he speaks in this cloaked manner of a parable. I hope that we will be those who will receive the words of Jesus and not reject it. This parable continues the theme from the previous chapter that the heirs of the kingdom have rejected it. Who are the heirs of the kingdom? The Jewish people. The Jewish people who had great privileges and great blessings and promises from God, they were the heirs of the kingdom, or they should have been, but they, en masse, with a few exceptions, had rejected it. And so now Jesus says, it's about to be offered to others. And some of them will respond to it. So what we'll see, first of all, is the wedding invitation 
of the kingdom, followed by the RSVP, we might say. Then thirdly, the response of the wedding planner, which is a, a new invitation given to others. And then finally, a wedding crasher, we might say, an unwanted guest and how he's responded to at the end of this passage. So first we begin with the wedding invitation of the kingdom, verses 1 to 4. Jesus spoke to them. Who's them? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. He's primarily responding to them, but other people are listening in. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, and they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. So the, this parable begins with him continuing to confront the religious leaders. And the parable itself, or the story itself, what he's trying to intimate through this parable is that a new reality has dawned in the world because the king has now shown up Jesus. He is both king and Messiah. The kingdom is being pronounced. And you remember early in Jesus' ministry, he'll say things like, the kingdom is at hand, so get ready. John the Baptist said, the kingdom is about to dawn, so therefore repent and turn and get ready for it. And now Jesus is in essence saying, the kingdom is now. It's coming. It's in the process of being birthed at this very moment. So either get on board or you will suffer the consequences. And so this new reality has dawned, and, and this is what he shows us in this picture of a wedding feast. Now, each part of this parable, up to a point, is somewhat allegorical. So each person or, or group or action represents something in reality. These servants or slaves who were sent out as messengers to give the message and bring the people in to give out the invitation, who are they? Well, they're the Old Testament prophets. They're the people that God had sent to the Jewish people and to other nations as well, men like Jonah who went to the Assyrians, to say, here's what God demands of the world. You must turn to the one true God. Stop worshiping your foolish idols, etc. But unfortunately, the Jewish people and many other peoples of that time refused those invitations. Now, in ancient times, there were actually two invitations that were given out. And this, if we're not clear on this, we might get a little confused at what Jesus is doing with this parable. This parable assumes that the first invitation has already gone out. In the ancient times, what they would do is they would send out an invitation for a wedding banquet, and it was a general invitation. The king's son is going to get married, but there was no date attached, no time attached, because it, it was unclear yet when exactly the date and time would be. But it was, FYI, this is going to happen, and we'll follow up with the second invitation when we have all the details. But essentially what has happened in this parable is everyone who was invited has said, oh yes, of course I'll be there, to the generic original invitation. But now, in this parable, Jesus is especially highlighting the second invitation that's going out with a specific date and time. It's ready. It's now. Come. And that's what they're responding to. But we see that as they respond, what's interesting is the word here that stresses the fact that they're turning away, they, it says they sent some of the servants and invited them to the banquet to come, but they refused to come. That word refuse in the original language is not just a one-time no, I'm not coming, or I can't make it. This is a continual refusal, and that's important to understand. 
This is the messenger going out and saying, no, the time is prepared. It's ready. Come. You said you were coming. The king says, come. Now is the time. And they say, no, I'm not doing it. Say, no, 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 you don't understand. Now is the time. You, you, you must come. No, not going to do it. And it's this continued rebellious refusal. So this was a deliberate insult on the king and his son and the son's wedding. This was a deliberate insult against them. It's not as if they were ignorant. It's not as if they didn't know. It's not as if something really important had come up. It had not. This was a calculated insult, just as the religious leaders were continually performing calculated insults against Jesus and against his father. But then the second set, verse 4, of emissaries goes out. And so interestingly, the king sends out what we might call a third invitation. But really, it's just a second invitation given again. He's being extremely gracious, saying, you know what, I'm going to give them another opportunity, even despite their multiple refusals. And so he sends out the second group of emissaries. Who are these? Well, if the first group of, of messengers or emissaries is the Old Testament prophets, the second group is John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, I'll show you exactly why we know that is the case in a moment. But what's going on here is, is interesting because the people who were invited deserve judgment. In any ancient culture, if a king gave this sort of invitation to specific people and they said they would come initially, and then they say, eh, I can't be bothered, I'm going to go do something else, that would bring severe judgment. But what the king does in this instance is he doesn't go right to judgment. Instead, he gives multiple gracious attempts because he's loving. And notice what it says. It says they would not come. That's, a, that's an action of the will. They chose not to come. Not they could not come. Nothing was keeping them from coming. So this was a deliberate choice. I like how Spurgeon says it. He says, by this deliberate choice, they thus manifested their disloyalty to the king, their disobedience to his command, their dislike to his son, their distaste for the royal banquet, and their disregard to the messengers sent to them by the king. This was purposeful, and this was rebellion and treason. So those invited guests, who are they? Well, they are, of course, the religious leaders primarily. That's who Jesus' main interlocutors are. But it's also the Jewish people as a whole, many of whom were rejecting their Messiah to his face, then and there with Jesus, and many of whom throughout their history had continually gone against the ways of God. But let's see what the RSVP, so to speak, was in verses 5 and 6 says this, but they paid no attention. These individuals who were asked even a second time with a whole new set of messengers, please come. They paid no attention. They went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. So the respondents moved from rudeness initially, nope, not going to do it, to some of them to indifference, others to violence. Some just walk away, verse 5. They act as if nothing out of the ordinary is going on, meaning that they really think very little of the king and very little of his son. But some seize this group of messengers, mistreat them, and even kill them. Now, the word there is a very particular word. It's quite interesting. Matthew is an excellent author, an excellent writer. And if we were reading this in the original language, which was Greek, Koine Greek, You would have noticed this term back in chapter 14, verse 3, because Matthew uses it three times. Back in 14, verse 3, when John the Baptist was seized, pulled into prison, and eventually had his head cut off. 
It's going to be used here in this passage, but it's also about to be used in a few chapters in chapter 26, verse 48, when Jesus, too, is seized by the Romans, turned over by the Jewish people, and eventually crucified. And so what, what Jesus is saying through this parable, and John is trying to highlight for us, is who are these messengers who are seized and killed? Well, it's John the Baptist and Jesus. That's who it is. Now, what's the response of the king, the wedding planner, if you will, to all of this? Well, interestingly, it's first judgment, but then also grace. How is that? Verses 7 to 10. The king was enraged, and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. By the way, for all the listeners, when Jesus was originally giving this parable, all the listeners would have nodded their heads in agreement at this point. Like, yes, this is a legitimate action by the king. This is what he rightly should have done in this instance. Everyone would have acknowledged this was just and right because the people were fomenting open rebellion and treason against their king. I know it seems a bit extreme to us today because our society is very different in how it operates. For instance, if, if someone um, disregards what the premier says or what the prime minister says, the worst they might face is a fine or a short imprisonment. It's a very different day and age and a very different expectation level. And so all the people would have understood what Jesus was saying here. The king, he sends his army and destroys the murderers and burn their city. What city is that? Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a moment. But then verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Verse 9, go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets. They gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the response of the wedding planner is, first of all, destruction or judgment on those who had refused in their treasonous and rebellious act, but also a, a significant graciousness and, and kindness and mercy in that he sends out his messengers. He is determined that his son is going to have a full banquet hall. And so he says, go and invite anyone and everyone. Now, what city was destroyed? Well, he's referring primarily to Jerusalem, although this is a generic judgment he's talking about for those who reject Jesus, and the, all who reject Jesus are also rejecting the, his father. It's a generic judgment in one sense, but he's talking about a specific city. What city? Well, it's Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, about 40 years after this, the, the multiple pronouncements by Jesus that the city would be destroyed because of her rebellion against God were fulfilled when the Romans destroyed it. But that judgment was actually only a taste it was only a precursor, a foreshadowing of a much greater judgment that the book of Revelation tells us about later, which will be enacted upon all those who refuse the invitation of God. What does he say in verse 8? He says that they are not worthy. Those individuals were not worthy. They rejected the king, and they rejected his son, and they were not worthy to be in the kingdom. And so verse 9, what does he do? He says, go to the street corners. Why the street corners? Well, two reasons. One, the city was destroyed. So you're not going to go to the main town square if the city is in ruins. But two, and, and this is more to the, the broader point, is 
the outskirts of the city where various streets would cross, that's the place where people are going to be. The people coming into the city, the people leaving the city, the people passing by the city. So go where the people are and tell them. It's what Jesus says in one of his last commands to his followers in Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Get the message out far and wide. And God's servants still have that task of offering the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of the gospel to all people. So we see both God's wrath and judgment against sin and the rebellion, but also His gracious inviting of both what He terms the good and the bad. Who are the good and the bad? I think it's a double meaning here. So follow me with this. Who are these good and bad folks that He invites to the wedding? Well, good and bad, first of all, I think is intended in Matthew's Gospel in this sense. You remember the type of people that Jesus was accused of hanging out with or spending time with or inviting into the kingdom? It was, it was the outcasts in societies, the, the, the people that the religious leaders looked down on. It was the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. But Jesus also spent time with those who would have been considered morally good in society, didn't he? Nicodemus, John chapter 3, and others. And we find that it seems Nicodemus had responded to him or was in the process of responding to him. Joseph of Arimathea, later on, a wealthy individual, well-known in society, he has responded to him and gives his unfinished tomb for the body of Jesus to be buried. So I think what Matthew is pointing us to here through Jesus' parable and what Jesus is intending here is from the perspective of the society, he was inviting everyone, anyone and everyone, those that society saw as good, those that society saw as bad, all were invited. It was an indiscriminate invitation. But secondly, I think the, the second part of the meaning here is also that many of those who were invited thought they were legitimately a part of the kingdom. But at Judgment Day, as he intimates to us here, they're going to be thrown out. So this is the bad group. This is, this is the sort of bad apple that makes the whole bushel become rotten. It's the, the bad egg out of the dozen that can quickly start to affect the other eggs. And what it's saying here is this individual, or individuals, I should say, although he's going to draw our attention to one particular individual in the parable, these are those who think they're in, but they're actually going to be sorted out and pulled out at the judgment. And actually Jesus is going to give a much more full depiction of how this is going to work in a couple chapters. And we'll see that with the, um, the judgment of the sheep and the goats with a, a different illustration he gives. But now we see the unworthy guest, or we might call it the wedding crasher, and the lesson that we're to learn from this. Verses 11 to 14. This is what we're told. But when the king came in to see the guest, so now the, the banquet hall is full, the messengers have done their job. The good and the bad, everyone indiscriminately who has responded to the invitation is there. He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked. No, notice that. The king approaching a man who's not doing what he's supposed to be doing at his own son's banquet. And he, he approaches him very kindly. Friend. Friend, he said. How did you get in here? without the proper wedding clothes, and the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. 
Now, if we're not careful at face value, if we don't understand the full implications of this parable, we'll think that these last four verses are a bit extreme. As if this parable has all of a sudden taken a turn to a very dark area and we're a little confused as to why it went there. But this is all quite fitting if we understand it more fully. The explanation of a few elements is in order, first of all. Verse 13, what is this outer darkness weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, that's the typical description of hell, where all those who reject Christ will go. Christ has spoken of it in chapters 7, 8, and 9 of Matthew's Gospel and many other places. It's originally the place that was intended for Satan and his demons. But it is also the place that all those who side with Satan and his demons against God the Father and his anointed one Christ will also go. And the scriptures are very clear on this point. There are only two locations that a person can go once they die on this earth, and that's heaven, to be with God, or hell, to be apart from God for all of eternity in torment, in judgment. Many people don't like to talk about hell these days. Many are happy to talk about heaven in some generic sense, but but very few want to talk about hell, and yet Jesus talked about hell more than any other New Testament author. Because it's a real place. And Jesus warned people over and over again, don't go there. This is how you can be saved from it. That's why he came, was to keep people from having to go there if they would just respond to his invitation. But the only way to respond properly, the only way to keep yourself from getting thrown out into outer darkness and this horrible torment is to have the proper clothing. Well, what's the proper clothing? The proper clothing is the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' perfect goodness and righteousness, positive purity, we might call it, that he lived while on this earth, unless we have that righteousness of Christ and he provides it through the cross, then we cannot get in. And that will ultimately, if you have that new clothing of Christ's righteousness, the righteous robes of Christ, then it will result in your right living as well. You'll produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so, from the human perspective, it begins with repentance, turning from our sin, in faith to God. Through that process, through that calling, we receive the righteousness of Christ, and we trade in, as part of that repentance, our sin-filled clothing, our putrefying, stinking garments. We trade that in for His perfect white robes of righteousness. Now, here's a few bits of the interpretation which are so essential for us. These verses, they affirm that receiving an invitation to God's kingdom, that initial invitation that goes out, receiving that invitation to God's kingdom does not guarantee that you will be included in the kingdom. This is absolutely essential to understand. Responding positively to the initial invitation does not guarantee you a place in the kingdom. So many people are fooled at this point because they haven't understood the words of Jesus and they haven't listened to what he said. He warned us of this. One must be. It's an absolute necessity. One must not just respond initially favorably, but they actually have to be clothed in the righteousness that only Christ can provide. Notice, it's not a matter of whether they claim they've responded or they claim to have the right garment. That's irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is whether they actually are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. One must be properly clothed in that righteousness. Otherwise, they will not be included. We're we're told this throughout the Scriptures. 
The book of Revelation speaks of this in chapter 3 and chapter 19. But we're also told it in the Old Testament. And so this is why what Jesus was saying and the religious leaders hearing it should have understood it because it's spoken of in the Old Testament in places like Zechariah chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Although everyone who hears the gospel has been invited, there's a general invitation. And although many claim to be in the kingdom, they claim to have responded to that initial invitation, only those who are actually clothed in that righteousness will be in the kingdom. Only those who are chosen will be present at the marriage supper. Now this election, this choosing, we're told, doesn't depend on any previous status. This is something Jesus said earlier in Matthew's Gospel. The people who will actually be in the kingdom are not those who might be in a particular kingdom here on this earth because Jesus says very clearly, my kingdom doesn't work like the kingdoms of the world. It's not those who can buy their way in. That's irrelevant. Jesus doesn't respond to that. It's not those who have political clout and authority in society. Jesus doesn't care about that. Even Jesus' enemies acknowledged you don't regard other human beings in the sense that you don't really care about their status in society. You don't care how society views them. You care about how God views them. And that was the point, of course. So normal status in this society won't get you in. Now that's both good and bad news. Good news in the sense that everyone comes on a level playing field. Good news especially to those who don't have status in this society, so they can't lean on that. But it's also real bad news for those who are constantly leaning on their status to get them where they want to go. Because it's hard for them to give that up, just as it was hard for the rich young ruler to give up his riches. The banquet, though, was intended for what purpose? To honor the son. But what does this man do who comes to the banquet? He has no intention of honoring the son. He was willing to eat the good things that were set before him, but his heart had no love for the king, and his heart had no love for the king's son. Now, this is a, an important distinction to make. Theology, theologians make a distinction, which comes from many passages of Scripture, between what's called a general call and a special, sometimes called specific call, or an effectual call. All right, I'll use the term effectual call. A general call and an effectual call. There are two different types of call to respond to Christ. Uh, or we might say two types of invitation to respond to Christ. The first is general. That's to go out to every human being. Jesus says, go preach the gospel to every human being. So that call can rightly be given to anyone, anytime, any place. Here's what Christ has done for you. Repent of your sin. Turn to him. That is a true invitation. But it's just the initial invitation. If a person responds positively to that, it doesn't make them a Christian. There's a second type of call that also must be responded to, which is called the effectual call. To put it, this, to put it in a different way, um, it's, it's a bit like this. The first call, the, the generic call, any of us can give out. We can say, please come to Christ. Please respond to him. Please repent and turn. And that's what we should do if we're a Christian. We should share it with all other people. But the effectual call is different. It's not something you or I can do it's not a call that we can actually give. It's not an invitation that we can extend. It's something that only the Holy Spirit of God can extend. This is the, the calling that God's Spirit works in the heart of an individual as they hear the general call that you and I might be sharing the gospel with them. As they hear that, in some cases, at certain times, God chooses, according to his own good plans, 
to effectually call the heart and mind of that individual to him. Essentially, he opens up their heart and mind so that they can understand the gospel, so that they see it as wonderful, so that they want it, so that they see Christ as valuable and beautiful, and they respond to him in truth. He brings regeneration into their heart. He implants faith into their heart. He causes them to repent and turn to him. And what Jesus is saying here is that, yes, we need to give out the invitation to everyone, but only those who have what you might call the second invitation, this effectual calling. Only those who have been changed from the inside out and given the royal robes of Christ, which only the Holy Spirit can do. You and I can't manufacture it. It's, not amount of, it's no amount of emotion can bring it up. No amount of spiritual experience. None of that is relevant. Only something, the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that will actually cause a person to be included in the kingdom on judgment day. That's what Jesus is saying. Many are called, few are chosen. Or, uh, depending on the translation, many are invited, but few are chosen. And this is where many people get confused. Because so many who claim to be Christians say, I responded to the initial invitation. That's wonderful. Good. Doesn't make you a Christian. Unless you have the righteousness of Christ, unless you are clothed in that garment, unless your sin-stained garments have actually been traded in for that and you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone, and He has worked a new spiritual life in you which will always produce actual spiritual fruit, then responding to the initial invitation does you no good. Let's draw six quick uh, applications or conclusions from this. First of all, verse 1. Remember what caused Jesus to utter this parable. What was it? It was the religious leaders, and they were trying to argue with him. Now, they didn't understand it in one sense. But what they were doing is they were arguing with the God that they claimed to worship. It is a fool's errand to argue with God. And we need to be reminded of that. Don't argue with Jesus. He's God. The only proper response is to say, yes, Lord, and do what he says. If you argue with God, you will always lose. And you always destroy yourself in the process. Secondly, verse 2, we're told that the basis of how we will be treated on Judgment Day, the judgment that will be meted out to us on Judgment Day, is in direct proportion to how we responded to the Son. What have you done with Jesus? How have you responded to Jesus? That's the basis upon which you will be judged one day. Not how religious you are, or what experiences you had, or what emotional uh, religious experiences you had, or how much money you gave away to charity or religion, but what did you do with Jesus? Thirdly, in Revelation 19, 7-10, we see more about this wedding supper or wedding banquet. There it's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you will remember. But will you be present at that great celebration? Those who try to enter the kingdom without repentance, without receiving the royal righteous robes of Christ, will not be in. They will be cast out on the last day. They will be rejected and condemned to eternal punishment. That's a sobering reality, which means all of us should stop and really consider where we stand before God based on what He says is important. Fourthly, there's both an invitation here and a command. And this is so vital to understand. It is an invitation in the sense that we give out this message. We preach the gospel. We share it with our friends and family. We invite them, please respond to Jesus. 
from a human perspective, it's first and foremost an invitation. But from God's perspective, remember, he's the king. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the sovereign one who inhabits eternity. Therefore, it's a command. Come to the wedding banquet of the Son. Full stop. There's no option. There's no take it or leave it. It's not an invitation in that sense. Take it or leave it, no big deal either way. No, it's a command from your Creator. And since He has ultimate authority, everything He commands, we must submit to or face the judgment, the repercussions. He commands, Paul tells us in the book of Acts, all men everywhere to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth through Jesus. That's a blanket command for all of humanity. And so on judgment day, they will be judged, every single human being, you, I, everyone, will be judged on what we did with Jesus. Did we respond to Jesus? Do we have the righteous clothing of Jesus? And we can't say, well, we didn't know. We can't say, well, uh, you know, I was given the invitation, but I thought it was a take it or leave it. No, this is a command from your God. Repent or judgment is coming. And that judgment will be just on judgment day. Because anyone who refuses the king's command is in rebellion against him and is a traitor against him. God commands our attendance and our participation. Fifthly, you cannot come to the supper of the lamb on your own terms. Like that man wearing the wrong clothes, only by coming when dressed in the righteous robes of Christ can we come. There's a wonderful Christian hymn that says it this way. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Some of you may know this one. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It's a great question to ask. But interestingly... The second verse captures something else from this passage, which is anyone who actually is washed in the blood of the Lamb, who has those righteous garments, will live like it. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but we will have the desire and we will seek to have the discipline to become more like Christ each and every day. We will be producing spiritual fruit. This verse says this, are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? This is a vital question to ask. Do we actually have those garments on? But there's also a second question that's implied from this parable, especially for those of us who call ourselves Christians in the church. The question is this. Are you actually a Christian? And how do you know, if you say yes to that question, how do you know that you're actually a Christian? Because we've seen that not all who call themselves Christians are actually chosen. They're not all actually clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So how do you know? Because we remember if God's invitation to Israel, the Jewish people, ultimately resulted in many of them thinking they were in the kingdom, like the religious leaders, but Jesus is saying, no, you're going to be cast out on judgment day. So how do you know? Well, actually, John the Baptist gives us the exact answer. He says... First of all, repent. So that's, that's how you get in initially. You repent and believe. You turn from your sin. You give up your garments. You take the clothing that Christ provides. You're trusting in Him completely. And then He says, then produce fruit, spiritual fruit, 
in keeping with your repentance. True repentance will always result in true spiritual fruit. A person truly becoming a Christian will always result, inevitably result, can't help but result in them producing spiritual fruit. Now, it may not always be the amount of spiritual fruit they should be producing. It doesn't mean all of us are as godly as we should be. Nothing like that. We need to work in tandem with the Spirit. We need to discipline ourselves to godliness. We're told that. We're commanded that. But if you have been a Christian for some time, or you claim to have been a Christian for some time, and you have no spiritual fruit to speak of, then why on earth would you think that you've ever actually repented? That's, that's part of the implication here as well. There's a requirement for right belief, right response to Christ, but also right living according to the kingdom demands. You have to live as if you're part of the kingdom. And conversely, if, if you're not living according to kingdom values and precepts and according to the way the king has organized reality and what he has commanded you to do, then why on earth would you think that you're a part of his kingdom? If you claim to be a Christian, are you truly living according to the standards of the kingdom that Christ preached? Don't deceive yourself. Because many do deceive themselves, Jesus tells us, and will be cast out. Are you bringing forth spiritual fruit in keeping with true repentance if you call yourself a Christian? The consequences for not doing so are dire and eternal. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering parable. We acknowledge that. It's convicting. No doubt there are two groups of individuals hearing it this moment. Those who know they are not a Christian or you are causing them to realize that at this moment. And I ask for them that you would help them to respond to Jesus. To realize that that is how they will be judged on Judgment Day. As to what they did with Jesus. Help them to trade in their sin-filled robes for those that only Christ can provide. Help them to repent and turn to you alone. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, help us to take to heart the warning that not all who respond to that initial invitation are actually going to be in the kingdom. That is a scary prospect, we admit. But help us not to reject it out of hand or ignore it because it's uncomfortable. Rather, help us to really consider it. And to ask the question, am I producing the fruits of the kingdom? Because if I've been given the true spiritual life that only Christ can provide, I, I won't be able to help but be producing some spiritual fruit by his power. I pray that you would clearly convict those who have been deceiving themselves into thinking they're a Christian when they are not. And help them to turn to you and actually receive that effectual call. Change their hearts and minds. Call them to repentance. Give them new spiritual life and the righteous robes of Christ. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.